Hi there. My name is Katie DeFiori, and I am the network manager for the Democracy Group Podcast Network. This is a special episode from the Democracy Group, which the show you are currently listening to is a proud member of. The podcasts in our network strive to uncover what is broken in our democracy and find ways to fix it. To discover all of our shows and learn more about the Democracy Group, please visit us at democracygroup.org. COVID-19 brings together several issues that have long been talked about separately. Political polarization, misinformation, international cooperation, democratic norms and institutions, and many others. Today, we will be diving into those topics and examining the ways that the coronavirus has impacted democracy locally, nationally, and internationally. My name is Jenna Spinelli, and I'm one of the hosts of the Democracy Works podcast, one of the member shows in the Democracy Group podcast network. I'm delighted to be joined today by several academics and thought leaders in politics and foreign policy who also happen to be hosts of Democracy Group podcasts themselves. We've all been covering the coronavirus individually on our shows, and I'm excited to tie some of those threads together in this conversation today. So joining us is Jeremy Surrey, Mac Brown Distinguished Professor in the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin and host of This is Democracy. Jeremy, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited about this conversation. Uh, joining us as well is Weston Womp, Consultant and Senior Political Strategist at Issue One and host of Swamp Stories. Weston, welcome. Hey, thanks. It's, uh, it's obviously in this unusual time, fun to meet new people. Joining us as well, Luke Nittig, Senior Director of Communications at the McCain Institute and host of In the Arena. Luke, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Jenna. Wonderful to be with you and be with everybody. And finally, uh, Rachel Tausenfreund, Editorial Director at the German Marshall Fund and one of the hosts of Out of Order. Uh, Rachel, thank you for joining us from Berlin today. Thanks for having me. This is going to be fun. And greetings from Berlin. Okay, so I'm going to start off with with a a round of questions for each of you individually, and then we'll expand out to some topics I'm hoping that uh, you can all weigh in on. Um, Jeremy, let's let's start with you. In um, a recent episode of This is Democracy, you talked about how the political focus in the U.S. for the past generation, if not longer, has been on short-term conflicts. And I'm wondering how that that way of thinking, that mode, impacts where we are today, and uh, perhaps if you think we're likely to shift out of that mode um, moving forward as, as a result of the coronavirus? Well, I think you ask one of the key questions uh, about the current state of our democracy, and it's something I've done a lot of research on and, and actually written a few books about too. Uh, what you find when you look closely at how uh, elected leaders have been making decisions in the last 20 to 30 years, you find that their time frame has become more and more constrained. And that's due to three factors among others. One is our contemporary media, which puts everyone in a micro, in a, under a microscope uh, continuously. Second, uh, there's the cycle of fundraising, the need to constantly be out there raising money. And third, and perhaps most significant uh, of all, there is just the overwhelming number of issues that political leaders are dealing with. I spent a lot of time looking at how they allocate their time, and you find it's reacting to one fire after another. What happens as a consequence? Uh, you're constantly tactically trying to juggle balls and not thinking about the long passes you need to throw to actually win the game. And that's exactly what's happened with uh, coronavirus. Uh, 
People have been warning of this pandemic uh, exactly in these terms for more than a decade. People from all directions, all parties, and politicians have not denied it. They've just been focused on other things. And our hope uh, is that this moment is awakening us not simply to the importance of these long-term issues, we've known about that, but to the importance of reorganizing how we construct politics to make more space and more incentive to focus on the long term. And that's what I hear from my students. So I'm optimistic in those terms. And that's why the podcast is a good venue to talk about that. Yeah, great. No, and I think we'll maybe circle back at the end to to some of those changes and the kind of where we go from here. But but always good to start on on a positive note. I know some of us in our shows don't always do that necessarily. And <laughs> it's with, not with easy. good reason, which which we'll also get to. Yeah. Um, so, so Weston, I want to um, bring you in here. Uh, you know, Jeremy hit on one of the the constraints, one of the challenges, one of the reasons we got to this place where we are is because of the increased pressure on lawmakers to always be out there, you know, raising money. And I know money in politics is one of, if not the main focus of, of your work at, at, at Issue 1 and on Swamp Stories. Um, so I'm just you know curious, what role has lobbying and, and money in politics and those, those influences played in the U.S. government's response to COVID-19 from, from what you've seen? Yeah, well, J- Jeremy's right. I mean, part of the reason that everything in American politics has become, I think on both sides of the aisle, pretty short term, is that the culture in Washington uh, really demands that if you're going to move up the ladder, and, and in, in a lot of ways, if you're ever going to get there in the first place, that you be an effective and forceful fundraiser. And we did an episode talking about if you're around the Beltway or inside the Beltway or around the swamp, you're you're familiar with uh, the process that a lot of people call dialing for dollars. And and we broke that down because it's shocking to a lot of people to realize that in the lives of many members of Congress. Uh, the first thing that's top of mind, especially in election year, is how am I going to raise enough money? And there are these just sort of shocking amounts of money uh, that have to be raised weekly, monthly. And, and so much of even the schedule, uh, the social schedule uh, on the Hill is uh, focused around fundraising. And those lobbyists, in many cases, those evening gatherings with lobbyists, uh, or to cultivate relationships, frankly, for moments just like this. You hate to think of a pandemic as being the type of a perfect storm for a lobbyist. But the truth is, when both Republicans and Democrats agree, we got to spend trillions of dollars, that is as much a uh, – you know, an aligning that uh, lobbyists are, are waiting for. And then that, that obviously is uh, all encompassing. It, it paints with a broad brush what all lobbyists are doing. There's good and bad that's revealed in these moments. I mean, they, they, lobbying is firmly protected by the First Amendment for a good reason. There, are, I would argue that part of the reason that small businesses uh, got a big chunk of that $2.2 trillion was because you can imagine there was a very strong small business lobby. Uh, on the flip side, a lot of what people uh, resent about Washington, I think, was on full display. Is it lobbyists? And there were plenty of public reports of this, um, that there were lobbyists from virtually every industry you can imagine that came with their hands out uh, wanting to get in on, on uh, you know, again, this, this unusual, historic, multi-trillion dollar bipartisan moment in Washington – I think the the worst of that is probably evidenced by what you see as a follow-up. I think a good example of industry lobbyists uh, trying to seize the moment would be you, you take a look at in infrastructure and this idea that there might be an infrastructure play as part of a recovery. Well, I mean, even President Obama uh, talked about how, you know, shovel-ready is not 
actually shovel as, as shovel ready as it sounds, right? And because of all the regulatory hurdles, when you uh, green light investment in infrastructure, it usually takes years for uh, dirt to move. And this is not a scenario where the U.S. economy is likely to need uh, coronavirus recovery four years from now when you might be, uh, you know, building new bridges. Well, the, but the point is, you know, it sure does sound like an interesting time for people in the transportation industry to come forward, uh, lobbyists particularly, and, and ask for their share. Yeah, no, and that, that also brings in, I think, some of the, the deeper dynamics about that, that, that the the virus has brought to bear of like the focus on individuals and the, the people that we care about most immediately, whether it's our family or our industry or our sector, and like the broader social contract that we're all trying to to uphold. Um, I think we'll maybe come back around and and touch on on some of that as well. Um, so, Luke, thinking about the the work that the McCain Institute does, um, I know you focus a lot on you know what it takes to. Uh, be be a citizen of a democracy to act with leadership and integrity, um, and and so I'm just curious, you know, how how you guys have have been thinking about the virus and the the response to it, and and maybe you know even some of what what Weston and and Jeremy have been talking about. It seems like we have a real vacuum or or real need right now for some of that, you know values, purpose-driven leadership in, in Washington and in, in states and really all over the place as everybody comes, comes to grips with the virus. Yeah, I mean, it, it sure seems like a time for courage and, and character and, and character-driven uh, leadership. Like so many institutes and, and outfits, you know, we've had to, to pivot and change how we uh, go about our programs, but they're turning up some interesting, maybe data points isn't the right way to, to put it, but um, I'll just give you a couple of examples. We have a, a challenge competition that involves, uh, well, it did involve 10 universities. Only one fell out after the pandemic kind of scattered students across the country. We call it the peer-to-peer protective uh, project and it's something that Homeland Security used to do that we didn't want to see fall by the wayside. And it's project teams across universities. Johns Hopkins is one of them, Missouri State, Arizona State. But uh, it's them coming up with the right ideas of how you can tamp down online extremism and hate. And they've pivoted because you've seen it. You know whether it's uh, against Asians and you can uh, identify uh, other categories, and you know, they're coming up with some interesting ways. So I think at that level, kind of at that peer-to-peer uh, level, uh, it's important to see that go forward. But clearly, at the top uh, leadership level, uh, our other initiative that's underway is called "We Hold These Truths." It's been going for a couple of years. We have uh, worked with Countable, that civic engagement platform out of Silicon uh, Valley. Same kind of thing. We really feel it's important to step up now to talk about what's going on around the world and and the the threats and the impingements on human rights and dignity that's that's happening under cover of COVID. And you see it domestically as well. We have a, a labor tracker, a visual dashboard, if you will, high tech uh, in Texas looking at uh, agricultural uh, laborer violations. And, you know, you talk about human dignity and, and, and things that, that we need to be staying right on top of uh, right now. So I to kind of, yeah, money and people concerned about how to carry forward operations is, is, is on a lot of people's mind. But human dignity and, and what we have in terms of uh, uh, 
empathy and and compassion i'd say is every bit as important as uh, what we have in our in our reserve funds right now yeah and i i think that um that that issue of of human rights human dignity is going to be so important moving forward as we try to figure out i know there's there's talks about um, you know, how are we going to, to track people who who have COVID or who may have it? And there's all kinds of like technological solutions being proposed to that, but people are concerned about, you know, all types of, of, of issues there. We could maybe uh, come back around to that. But we've been talking about the, the U.S. mostly um, thus far, and I, I want to bring in Rachel for a bit of an uh, international perspective. Uh, you and your, your colleagues at GMF have been doing uh, great work um, covering how countries throughout Europe and throughout the rest of the world are, are responding to, to COVID-19 and also about um, transatlantic cooperation. And, and I wanted to, to maybe start uh, your your portion of, of our conversation there, you know, to what extent has there been transatlantic cooperation <laughs> in the the uh, COVID nineteen response? And then, how are our European countries working together? What is what is the the EU doing? I think in in the U S. we tend to get in our own little bubble. So, uh, um, please help us uh, see how things are happening elsewhere in the world. Sure, uh, happy to help. I mean, the short answer is there's not a lot of uh, there's not a lot of transatlantic in this uh, particular crisis. It was, in, in fact, it's really striking. I've been living in Europe for almost 20 years now. And I think this is the first crisis, European crisis, that I've experienced where no one is actually asking for U.S. help. There isn't even the expectation that it might be coming, which, you know, this was different with even the, you know, um, the, the crisis around the large influx of Syrian refugees in 2015. Even then, Europeans were sort of expecting the U.S. would help somehow. This time, it, it's just been absent for, you know, a number of reasons that we, we might get to. But um, it, it's, it's strikingly absent. NATO, you know, a bit belatedly has started to do a few things, delivering supplies and stuff. But it's, it's, it's a completely different ballgame than any of the crises that have come before. And in terms of Europe... Um, I mean, I'll, I'll try to sum it up because there's a lot going on, but I would say there were, there also hasn't been a lot of European, um, cooperation, a lot less than you, you would have hoped for. And there are two main reasons for that. One is specific and one is structural. So the specific one is, uh, what Jeremy said at the very beginning, right? Leaders are sort of putting out fires. Well, in Europe, when, um, the, you know, COVID was kind of making its way into Europe, they were dealing with another fire, which was, again, uh, refugees at the Turkish and Greek border. And this was the main thing that, you know, in European capitals and in the European Commission, they were really worried about. And this stretched into March. And so they just didn't have the right kind of bandwidth to focus on uh, the coronavirus uh, developments. The second element is structural, which is to say the European Commission has really limited powers when it comes to health policy. This is not one of the areas of policy that um, has been sort of centralized. So they can recommend things, they can, you know, try to make plans, but in the end, they're just recommending and all the stuff they can do is voluntary. So those were both problems. And then in addition to that, you know, everyone's reaction in the beginning was very nation state driven. The capitals made decisions. They made decisions about their people. You know, there was border checking. There was um, export bans on medical supplies. It was it was a pretty um, ugly moment for European cooperation. 
not that dissimilar to the U.S. In, in, in some ways, right? Yeah, yeah. I was just thinking, you know, sitting here thinking about um, some of the, the conflicts we're seeing play out between the U.S. federal government and state governments. It seems to me many similar things in, in Europe. Um, actually, on that point of government cooperation, we, we are seeing increasing rifts between the, the Trump administration and state governors, we're seeing states form these little compacts, one in, in the, the Northeast, one on the West Coast. And we're also seeing conflicts with people taking to their state houses to protest and trying to, to advocate for getting their, their state's economy back open and getting people back to work. I'm wondering what what you guys make of of some of those developments as they've they've been playing out. I should mention we are recording this on April 16th, so who knows where we'll be uh, when this comes out in in like a like a week or so. But you know uh, what 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 do you make of of you know what we're seeing as those those various lines of conflict play out? Well, I think we have to be careful when we uh, talk about those who are ostensibly protesting the uh, shelter-at-home orders and things of that sort. There's clear evidence that many people are concerned about the effects these orders have on the economy, but there's not a lot of evidence that a lot of people are protesting that. It's a small, organized group of people in various locations. So those who appeared at the uh, Michigan Capitol, uh, I believe, uh, earlier this week, uh, it was you know a few hundred, maybe a few thousand people. That's not insignificant, but that's hardly representative of a state of multiple millions uh, of citizens. Uh, most evidence is that most citizens, if they can, are trying to do what they can to physically distance themselves from others. Some people don't have a choice, and that's why minority communities and poorer communities have been hit harder. Uh, but people are generally, in the United States, and as far as I can tell in Europe, are generally trying to um, shelter themselves and, and recognize the seriousness of this issue. I think we represent, all of us, a, a different part of the country or the world. Part of what I have marveled at in the last month is we are living through uh, really like a, a great political science, what would normally be like a civics lesson in federalism or our form of government. You know, I mean, a lot of this is sort of theoretical until you begin to really learn in real time how important your mayor and your governor and the president are in their own lanes. And I'll say this, I mean, when you sh begin to shut the country down, which is an un is, is, is really almost unconscionable. We wouldn't have, you, these are not things you normally think about. When you begin to do that for the reasons that we have, it, I think in hindsight, was relatively orderly. And everybody going into a social distancing, uh, it looks different if you live in a, a single family home, maybe than an apartment. But the process of going into that lockdown looks pretty much the same everywhere. I think the reason that you will see more and more conflict as we begin to debate how we come out of it is that, for example, I live in Hamilton County, Tennessee, population 370,000. Uh, yesterday, April 15th, there was one new coronavirus case, uh, positive test case. Knox County, Tennessee, which is the home to the University of Tennessee, uh, a couple hours north of here, population 450,000 had two new cases yesterday. So you're coming up on a period of time where even though people in the state of Tennessee have sheltered in place, if that's the terminology you want to use, they've done the social distancing thing, they're going to begin to get pretty anxious because what they're seeing in their communities doesn't square with what they see on national TV at night. And they're not feeling nearly the same pressing health concern that they may be feeling in terms of uh, their economic well-being. 
Yeah, that's that's exactly what I'm seeing. So I'm in in State College, Pennsylvania, also also a college town. Our campus is mostly empty right now. So yeah, we're also seeing one or two new cases a day. But you know, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, some of the more urban areas in Pennsylvania, it's it's a very different picture. So thinking about the challenges these governors have of you know putting policies in place that impact an entire state, or or I'm sure it's the same, Rachel and. In, in Europe, if you're trying to put together, put in place policies that impact entire countries or, you know, um, nation states below that. But yeah, you still have that kind of urban rural shift and, and how that's all playing out. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, Weston, I wanted to, to actually follow up. Um, so I've been thinking a lot about Congress as well. So we've seen this like conflict between the president and, and governors have certainly risen to prominence. Where's where's Congress and all this? I mean, if, if you're a, 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 a U.S. rep, um, maybe to a lesser extent, a senator, are you feeling like you're kind of getting left behind right now? Or, you know, how do you kind of make your mark or, or keep yourself out there, especially if you're up for reelection in, in November? Isn't that fascinating? I, I started talking about that weeks ago. It's I pinned an op-ed in my hometown newspaper, and I wrote basically that people are about to get uh, you know a real crash course in who's got real power and who doesn't. I grew up the son of a member of Congress who served for sixteen years. And so there's, you know, there's the perception of power there. But in the middle of a pandemic, you realize that your local congressman doesn't have a very big staff and doesn't have hardly any authority. And I do think that's kind of tough for members of Congress, given that the nature of the public health crisis in a lot of ways prevents Congress from even doing its business normally. All right. They, they're, they're scared to convene in Washington. And uh, I think it, it's interesting. I think the members of Congress who are left with the most significant power in, in this unusual moment are the ones who have their own large and, and potentially even national social media followings, right? It's not based on their constitutional role, unfortunately. I mean, you've seen the kind of constant, I think this is a, a bipartisan comment, the, the pretty consistent degradation, uh, weakening of the role of the legislative branch in our form of government over many years, if not decades. Well, now it's like exacerbated by the, this very unusual a crisis that we're all living through. And I do think I, I was watching a press conference locally where the governor flew into town, the governor speaks, the county mayor spoke, the city mayor spoke, and the congressman who was standing behind him was never even given the opportunity to speak. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy to to think about. Yeah. I mean, how you capture that oxygen that's just increasingly been been sucked out of the room. So I know you guys will be keeping an eye on that for sure. Maybe you can have them all on your podcast, Weston. That, that can well, be their I, In all seriousness, we have had a we've had an easier time booking members of Congress who we've been trying to get interviews with because, uh, you know, I mean, to a large extent, I think they're kind of twiddling their thumbs. I mean, they're, you know, they're on calls. I think Speaker Pelosi is organizing calls for Dr. Fauci and others to brief members of Congress. Uh, but there is not the same responsibility falling on them that there are, that, that there are local elected officials. Well, I, I would just jump in. I mean, I think you're right, folks that have the big social media following, but, you know, folks that have big money too, right? You see Bill Gates and his wife stepping out in a big way. And I guess you have Jeff Bezos, Mark Cuban. I mean, that that's out there. And then kind of the counter to that, people that kind of scratch their head and say, gosh, there are folks with uh, billions and billions. Um, what should be, they be doing in this uh, besides maybe riding it out on their yacht in the middle of the med? Right. Rachel, so what um, we've we've been talking about some of the the kind of response people throughout the the U.S. are starting to get anxious, starting to want to get back to work, get out of the house, going stir crazy. Are are we seeing um, some of that that same type of activity 
happening in in Europe as well? Yes, definitely. I don't. Um, there there have also been here in Germany, you know, a couple small demonstrations recently that were you know broken up of people complaining about or or worried about you know what's happening to our sort of fundamental rights. And and uh, in Germany, there's this you know because of the history of World War II, you have a kind of leftist movement that's very very aware of government overreach, you know, maybe too aware sometimes, but uh, there's a kind of active uh, core there of um, leftist movement. So you've seen that. I was uh, at the park the other day and, you know, someone was walking, holding a sign saying like, you know, what about our freedom? Stuff like this. But in general, um, you know, there hasn't been a lot of kind of broad scale civil disobedience. And in, and in Germany, in most places in Germany, so Germany is also federal, not you know, I always say not quite as federal as the U.S. in terms of, um, it, you know, they think they're very federal, but it's a lot more aligned than uh, sort of policies between states in the U.S. Um, they, they hate it when I say that, but I, I repeat it often. Um, and so you have, but in terms of the strictness of the um, stay at home or social distancing, it's different. And so in Berlin, it's a little more relaxed um, and people are allowed to kind of hang out in groups of two in the parks and things like that. Whereas in, in other places in Germany or for example, in France, you know, I have a colleague in, in Paris and they of course have pretty small apartments and they're really, you know, stuck inside and you have to fill out a form if you want to go outside at all. And, uh, nonetheless, it's, 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 it's gone really pretty smoothly. I would say in, in, you know, pretty much across Europe even if you think about Italy and places where people have been in quarantine, pretty strict quarantine for quite a long time, um, the level of kind of civic, you know, obedience and uh, a feeling of, you know, societal responsibility that that's that's been pretty striking. Yeah, that's and that's interesting, too, because you, you brought up. Um, France, I know that there is this culture of protest there, right? I mean, think about the the yellow vests that have been out for much of of, of the past year. I mean, so so, but there hasn't really been that that type of of response to COVID nineteen. And even thinking about some of the issues of of economic inequality, I can imagine people that had yellow vests on this time last year might also be pretty fired up about some of those issues that the the virus has has brought to bear. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, one thing one has to say, you know, in, a, in an American context is, of course, in terms of welfare state and, and a kind of safety net to catch these people, it, there's no comparison, right? Um, you know, there's existing structures. Um, in any case, um, the, you know, most states were also pretty quick to do different kinds of support. So everything's a little less dramatic. And in France being a good example, I mean, they, you know, they very quickly said, you know, um, rents don't need to be paid. No one can be evicted. All these kinds of things that you, you, you wouldn't even think about in the States. That certainly helps. But yeah, I mean, if you think about a place like France, um, and even just six months ago, the kind of protests that were going on, um, you know, everybody knows, and Italy's close, right? Italy and Spain are, you know, that's, that's close to home and things were quite dramatic. So, or, or still are really. Uh, so, so pe people have a sense of responsibility. Right, right. Uh, so, Luke, we were, were uh, talking earlier about um, bipartisan collaboration that that happened on as a as a result of getting this the stimulus bill passed or the bipartisan collaboration necessarily 
to get the the stimulus passed. I'm wondering, and I know that that was something that that Senator McCain, um, you know, often often tried to do in in his work was was work across the aisle. Do you think that um, in this this new kind of political reality we we find ourselves in, there is an opportunity for more bipartisan collaboration? Jeremy, you may want to weigh in on this as as well, or even Weston, or are we just going to kind of go back to the way things were and and being super polarized, uh, you know, once the the dust all settles from this, whenever that might be. Well, I'm a, I'm a ter- an eternal optimist, so <laughs> I think you know surely we can find uh, common ground. I'll put in a plug for my one of my upcoming uh, podcasts. I talked to Bruce Bond from the from the Common Ground Committee, and uh, we had a good discussion about what that means right now uh, in, in this moment. And I think you can find uh, common ground. The McCain Institute just uh, uh, brought on uh, Mark Green from USA to be our executive director, and that's a real hallmark of his uh, career. So you have leaders like that out there that know how to do this. And I think with all of us with more time or certainly attention to understand uh, some of the underlying aspects of the things right in front of us, like how are we going to hold an election in November? How should we hold elections going uh, forward? How should uh, testing uh, uh, work? I mean, I think that, you know, there are things that you frame them right. Golly, you're going to have to find uh, common ground. So I'm an optimist uh, about it. You know, it's pretty easy to go the other way and point at how folks want to politicize it in in a negative way, but I'm an optimist about it. I agree with that. I think we're seeing a lot of evidence uh, of uh, issues that had divided people now bringing them together. You still have partisanship. In fact, that process might encourage more short-term partisanship from those who are vestiges of the old order, if I might say so. So take the uh, recent uh, election in Wisconsin. Uh, what I think you saw there were uh, those in power trying to restrict the vote because of their fear for where that vote was going. Uh, but what you saw in the voting was actually uh, not necessarily a commitment to one party or another, but a commitment to problem solving. And I think we're seeing that also in Washington for all the the money and other interests that divide people and create incentives uh, for this uh, partisanship at the surface level. Look at what happened in the last bill. I mean, you had Republicans and Democrats agreeing on a stimulus package. That was unthinkable, unthinkable under President Obama, right? Uh, Whether it was the right package or not, we can debate, but it's extraordinary how much they actually uh, agreed on. It's going to be very hard for the next year or two to be someone who's against good government, for someone who wants to drain the swamp. If you want to drain the swamp in the next year or two, you want to deal with the stuff outside of government that's harming the use of government itself. But is anyone really against uh, the government helping with health care? Is anyone really against the government helping those who are unemployed? Uh, those positions now have become common positions. And so I agree with Luke. I think we're going to see a generation of politicians playing to that space. And maybe in 10, 20 years, we'll be complaining that there's too much consensus. We do tend to go in these cycles in our history. Yeah. Um, Weston, did you have, you have anything you wanted to to share there? You're you're talking with, with folks a lot, as you were just saying earlier. Well, I appreciate those two guys who are both smarter and probably better credentialed than I am. My hardly, fear hardly. is that we just use a yeah, you know a legitimate once in a century crisis to uh, point the finger, and I fear that that'll only accelerate into November. And and frankly, the allegations what what normally are political accusations and allegations, uh, you know that that have some limits. I mean, and, you know, in, in this scenario, uh, those accusations are about you know causing people to die. Um, I, I hope that we can come to a consensus in the summer months that this was just a lot more complex 
uh, then can easily be blamed uh, on anyone, mayor, governor, president, prime minister, uh, government head around the world. And, um, and that's not to give a pass <laughs> at all, but it's just, I, 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 that's my fear is that this thing can, could, could tilt in a direction where I think it particularly, if, if supporters of the president, for example, feel like down the stretch, there is this effort to lay at the president's feet, the, you know, the, these, the death numbers from the coronavirus, uh, it could exacerbate quickly the, uh, the partisan, tempers of the people. And uh, you know, I, don't, I think it's unknown how members of Congress are going to react by the time that they get to come back in a sense, uh, take the helm again, because they are largely left out of this. But if you look at some of the predominant voices, I, you know, I think the two, and, and I might be a little biased, but to me that your prevailing voices in Congress right now are both freshmen and they both have really unusual paths uh, to Congress. And it's Dan Crenshaw from Texas and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez from New York. And those two haven't come off of their, uh, you know, quite partisan and and well-articulated positions at all in the middle of this. I mean, if anything, I think they have uh, like found ample ammunition to use uh, towards the other side. And so I do think that is a bit concerning. If I could just come in on this, I think it's a great comment from Weston. I really, really appreciate it. It adds a lot. And and it, it actually reinforces, I think, the point that Luke and I were making. These are two sides of the same coin, which is to say that you are in the short run going to see uh, perhaps more partisan rhetoric but that doesn't mean that the country is moving in a more partisan way. And that's why I referred to the to the Wisconsin election. Uh, and the historical analogy here would be the analogy to Herbert Hoover. Okay, when, when you're president of the United States, Democrat or Republican, uh, you own the state of the economy. The most uh, accurate predictor of reelection for any president is economic growth and unemployment. Uh, second most is the number of deaths in war, right? Or the number of deaths as in our, in, our, in our moment now. You own that. And so, of course, that's going to be made into partisan hay. Of course, people are going to, on both sides, try to assert blame. Herbert Hoover tried to blame other people for the Depression uh, of 1929 to 32 when he was president, right? So that's going to be there. But you can at the same time have people coming together saying that we have common problems we need to solve. We might not all agree on who's to blame, but we want new people in there who we think can solve those problems. And that's what, if you look at the election of Franklin Roosevelt and the shift in the country that occurred then, it's not that overnight people became Democrats. It's not that the Democrats won the argument. It's that they believed that those who were in power, who happened to be Republicans in much of the country, that they were not managing the situation well. And they wanted a new set of leaders, and they gave them a clear consensus agenda to deal with the problems of the economy at that time. I predict or hope, based on that historical perspective, that we'll see a new generation of political actors, maybe some of the people Weston discussed, focusing on these common long-term problems, which will bring people together even as they remain these and ours. But of course, it will create a churn in November in who's elected and who's not elected. Yeah, yeah, that's a... That's a- Super interesting perspective. I like how you combine kind of the the history is like past, present, and future all in two minutes, Jeremy. That was great. Um, so, Rachel, you know, we've seen some of these same forces at play in Europe with the, the rise of, of populist parties and, and movements from certainly Brexit to uh, Italy, Germany. We've seen, you know, some of these these dynamics play out. Um, how how might the 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 virus and the response to it impact some of some of those dynamics 
Yeah, it's it's a complicated picture, I would say. So I'll start with the the dark and gloomy first, uh, which came to mind earlier when when Luke was being um, optimistic, which was great. Um, <laughs> but um, if you're in Europe, then you think about Hungary, Poland. Um, and a little less well-known Bulgaria. So Hungary passed, I think about a week ago, um, legislation sort of under the guise of emergency powers to fight, uh, you know, to react to the coronavirus. That's really just turning the country into some kind of sham democracy autocracy, right? It's taking away all kinds of powers from the opposition, from the media, things like that. And um, if you... Um, it, one of my colleagues, he's Hungarian and he was talking about, I mean, if you wanted to be generous, then you would just look and say, oh, you know, maybe they're really emergency powers. But if you look at the things they did right away with these powers, it was things like cut funding, because in Europe we have public funding mostly for elections and they cut public funding for elections. Well, who does that benefit? Of course, not the opposition. It benefits uh, the party that already is in power, has access to the press, things like that. So it's it's a clear and blatant and dangerous undermining of democracy in the guise of emergency response. Um, Poland's supposed to have an election in May um, and very likely the people in the party in power is going to push forward somehow with this election. And the opposition is very worried that that's um, it's a, you know, an unfair situation in which to be in the opposition and trying to win an election. So um, you definitely see some worrying tendencies of parties in power using this to undermine um, democracy. Rachel, Rachel I'm, I'm going to yeah. jump in real quick because I couldn't agree with you, you more. We have. Uh, oh no, we're both pessimists well, now. Well, 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 I mean, I can go the other <laughs> way. I mean, we have 50 next generation leaders, and and we have leaders we keep up with in all the countries that you you mentioned. I think of one that I interviewed on my podcast just months ago, who's in Hungary, and her objective is to try to bring better education to the Roma there, and you know, think of the kind of environment you're describing and how that affects. Um, her work. So I think, you know, that's absolutely something we need to focus on. You know, the bigger question there, right, for the first time from what I read or have smarter people than me tell me, authoritarian governments have more wealth than democratic governments. Now, I don't, you know, got to look at the balance books now, look at the books now. With, But think about that. The promise of prosperity, some would argue, is, you know, yeah. the, the balance is shifting there. I agree. I think we've got to be laser focused on that. And then places that are trying uh, their best. You know, we've, we haven't even talked about Africa. Look at South Africa and countries that are doing some pretty good things in this pandemic. And we got to make sure we're not that we're not forgetting about them. And I think that that goes to, you know, what American democracy and leadership has got to project and do. And I hope we get back to a point where we we I'm sure we do care, but where we we understand and, and see what we can do a little bit beyond our own uh, shores as well, even as we got to do all the things we got to do at home. Yeah, uh, no, I completely agree with that. All, all of that is very important. And then just to sort of, you know, spin it away from the total pessimistic picture, you you are also seeing in other countries, um, you know, maybe more heartening results, at least in the early stage. I mean, the, you know, the problem is the real economic impact. Right now we're in sort of immediate life-saving crisis response, which tends to awaken different things in a society. So, you know, these are results now. I'm not sure what the results will be in six months or 10 months. But um, in, for example, Germany, you have now um, the sort of center-left and center-right parties who are currently in government 
are um, are climbing in the polls, and Germany's novel uh, far right party. You know, Germany didn't have a far right party in the pol- parliament until recently. Um, their numbers are dropping, right? So people are. I mean, by most accounts, Germany is handling the crisis pretty well. The death rates are, you know, lower um, than in other countries, and people. People are seeing that, reacting to that, and understanding that they do care about experience, do care about government working, and they are a little less willing, at the moment at least, to be kind of just screw the people in power voting, right? This this is the the, the potential change that we're seeing right now that could be really good for, you know, democratic systems and 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 rules and order and things like that. When it's clear what the stakes are, people's willingness to kind of do a protest vote um, seem to be sinking. Now, again, uh, this is the short term picture. I, I hope it stays the same. I'm not sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, Jeremy, did you want to jump in there? Well, I did because I, I think it echoes and, and summarizes beautifully a lot of what we've talked about. Much of our politics over the last four to five years has been an argument between an establishment that wants to... Uh, protect the status quo and a group on the right more often than not, but sometimes on the left, that's argued that we need to destroy all these existing institutions. We need to be disruptors. Uh, And what we've come to at this moment is that we need competence. We need people who can get things done back to where we were before. If we're going to reopen our society, we need competent people who can assess where it's safe and how this can be safely done. And in in the case of Germany, which I also follow uh, relatively closely, it's really interesting how Angela Merkel uh, has become popular again. Um, and, and so this, this sort of commitment and interest in good governance, I think, is something we can really build on. And that's something we try to, to, to build energy on in, in our podcast. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, who's more competent than a physicist, right? You know, when you t- see her talking about like the exponential numbers, you're like, okay, here's someone who actually knows what she's talking about when she's getting into exponential numbers. It 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 makes an impact. Yeah, and to think about the ways in which I know there are some people who don't like Dr. Fauci, but but he he has become in many ways the the voice of the federal government. Uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, uh, J- Jerry Powell at the Federal Reserve. I mean, for the last five to ten years, uh, the Republican Party and some Democrats were condemning the Federal Reserve as being this sort of you know uh, bastion of elite economists. Right uh, now, the Federal Reserve has become the world's banker. And they're doing things that uh, many people thought they shouldn't do four or five years ago, that it's too much power they've taken on. They're basically providing credit to the entire world. I haven't heard a single federal politician uh, and very few state politicians criticize that uh, today. We're, we're happy to have their competence. Yeah, sure. We, and we, we talk a lot on our show, too, about this whole kind of death of expertise and, and how this, this might be an opportunity to, to bring some of that, that back around. Um, so we only have, have a few minutes left here. I want to um, start to wrap up. So, you know, one of the things uh, I think has been evident from this conversation, but uh, if it hasn't, will be evident once everyone goes and listens to all these other uh, great shows or, or everyone's shows. Um, one thing that's common among all of our podcasts is that they focus on what's broken in democracy and, and how we can fix it. Um, so we've touched on on some of this already, but maybe just as a, a kind of closing thought here what what are you guys keeping an eye on what do you think are is like maybe the most urgent issue from from where you sit or where your organization sits um that you know we kind of need to be thinking about as it pertains to the virus and and democracy moving here from spring into summer and and on down the road 
Well, I'll, I'll start because it's something we've been talking about in our last few episodes. Uh, the two things I look at most as a historian and also as an observer of contemporary politics, uh, are we seeing people come into office or those in office convert from being those who are trying to exploit the existing institutions to those who are trying to reform them? Is there a pragmatic problem solving that takes over? Because I think that is where the pragmatic consensus is also. It's around problem solving. And then second, are we seeing new energy and new mobilization around that? Are we seeing not just those in office, but those outside of office being mobilized? Are we seeing new money, even if it's microfinancing, going into those kinds of efforts? And in Austin, Texas, and in many of the places where we live, this sort of energy and innovation has been in the business sector for years. I'm looking to see that move into the public sector. I want that talent, that energy, and that kind of capital to be driving how we think about our societies and our democracies going forward. I think what we've been relatively obsessed by and obsessed with at issue one for the last few weeks is the question of how are we in a – I a lot of times liken this, and I think in Austin you'll appreciate uh, the comparison. The world really – stood still in East Tennessee when there was a first mention that college football may not be played. Uh, that's the point at which like the coronavirus got more serious than just a public health issue. Um, but in all seriousness, it actually calls the question of a much more important uh, American tradition this fall. And that is how are we going to hold safe elections? Right. I mean, you know, depending on people's political persuasion, they may have different opinions uh, in peacetime. Um, about how we can better expand access to voting. Uh, but this is a full-blown emergency uh, that is thrust upon us, and it's happening on the eve of a very consequential uh, national election. And I, I don't think here in April we can overstate the potential chaos um, and, and it is, it's not politically viable that the federal government, uh, step in and dictate what happens. And so we've got to make sure that states are paying attention and funded and that once each state makes its moves in terms of adding flexibility, expanding early voting, expanding absentee voting, that there's then a pretty uh, wholesome, I mean, uh, certainly an, an all-encompassing uh, public information campaign so that everybody can vote. Because the nightmare, uh, and there maybe are multiple, but the, the nightmare is that the election is effectively contested. Uh, and I think one of the things that is really important for the best leaders among us uh, to talk about and talk about consistently in the months to come is that we are not going to know, in my opinion, who the next president is uh, within days. And it might even take a couple weeks of Election Day. And I think we just need to prepare everybody that that's normal only this time. That's going to happen. It's unavoidable and it's OK. We've got to keep our wits about us. Uh, in in a really again really strange and unusual time. Yeah, and and to that point that that we were were talking about earlier, trusting the experts, trusting the the officials who are in charge of running and and counting these things to yeah believe their their process and and what they're doing. Um, 
we we've also we've also been concerned about that um, on, on our show and our work in the in the McCourty Institute. Um, we had an episode of our show with uh, Charles Stewart from MIT, who's been doing a lot of work in this area. Literally, I think he took a break between hopping on calls with various state election officials to uh, to, to to talk with us. But there are there is a, a big effort out there um, that that I know uh, issue one and lots of other groups are are working on to to try to shore things up between now and November. Um, Luke, uh, Rachel, what are, what are you guys thinking about as we look, as we move forward? Uh, you know, a, foc- a focus for us, um, kind of lost in the midst of all this is the uh, National Commission on Military and Public Service came out with their big 250 page, uh, report, uh, the fact that they recommended that, uh, that women, uh, should be part of selective service and be eligible to be drafted, made some news, but we're, we're focused on, you know, how do you inspire and, and bring forward more pathways uh, for service. We have a, a virtual summit we're doing uh, uh, with uh, ASU that'll have a number of, of the commissioners. Congressmen and women seem very interested in that. And, it, and it, I think the title kind of gives it away. It's meeting the moment, the next generation of, of, of public service. And I think now is the time uh, to, to really go to work on that. Yeah, yeah. To, to that point of, of what Jeremy was saying earlier, right? We need those new leaders. We need that kind of new crop to to step forward. Uh, Rachel, what about you? What's what's uh, German Marshall Fund doing? I know you just launched a, a series, the post pandemic, or kind of what what comes next. So what's what's on your your radar? Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, we, we're always sort of, we, we also focus a lot on democracy, but also the kind of, you know, the international structures around democracy and, and democracy globally and cooperation and the, the structures that support it. So we'll continue to, you know, have that kind of focus. Um, but indeed we did a kind of spin off of our normal, um, podcast that, um, the first episode just went live today, um, called post pandemic order, um, really focusing in on, you know, how are we dealing with this? What are the sort of geostrategic implications and what follows? And our first interview, um, this is a sort of interview focused uh, podcast was with Senator Chris Murphy. And and it's, uh, I mean, I definitely recommend it. And it's interesting because it, it wraps up so many of the elements that we talked about here, because he talks about U.S. leadership, you know, or lack of the kind of U.S. leadership that we've had before in these kind of global crises. He talked about what it means for democracies and democracies internationally. Um, and so it's, it's a really good conversation with my colleague, Julie Smith. And we're going to do more of that. We're going to have a former EU commissioner, um, I think, in our next episode, who's going to talk to us about, you know, the EU level and, you know, probably also the global level seen from the EU and, you know, economists, all kinds of things like that. So we're really going to focus in on that and continue our normal conversations. That's great. Looking forward to hearing those. Want to give uh, everybody else here one last chance to uh, plug your your podcasts. Are there either episodes that you recommend folks check out if they're maybe new hearing about your show for the first time uh, from this episode or anything you have coming up that's particularly exciting that folks should be on the lookout for? I'll jump in real quick. Um, I think journalism, right, and freedom of the press. Peter Copeland, uh, you know, he's a longtime uh, news bureau chief with Scripps Howard, global journalist. Our podcast is just out there talking about what it takes to produce uh, quality uh, journalism. And uh, I, 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 you know, I encourage people to check it out. Yeah, so important today. We didn't even get to talk about the media today, but that's that's a whole other 
impact on this and in something very near and dear to my heart the industry it's already been cut is being cut even even more so here so definitely we'll check that out well and on this is democracy we've actually gone to two episodes a week now uh, rather than just one episode a week and what we're trying to do is alternate between the hopeful and the not so hopeful and uh, we had for example last week we had actually a discussion of humor how does one uh, bring humor into this? Why do we need humor? And we paired that uh, with a discussion with Adam Tooze about the global economic implications, how we think about this moment, putting the world in this economic coma, and how we come out of that. Uh, this week, we paired a conversation with one of the leaders of the New York Police Department, who actually talked very positively about how citizens around New York City have reacted uh, with a discussion of globalization that we'll be posting actually just just uh, today on April 16th on how globalization is threatened by the world we're in. And so we're really trying to show both sides. Uh, and we're trying to bring out the arts as well. Every episode has a, a poem designed to try to get us all to see beyond beyond our four walls if we can. Great. Uh, Weston, we'll give you the, the last word if you have anything uh, Swamp Stories related that folks should check out. So uh, our most recent episode of Swamp Stories is relevant indirectly to the coronavirus moment because of the allegations that Senator Richard Burr and others dumped stock uh, shortly after a uh, a briefing uh, that in which uh, members of the U.S. Senate were given classified information regarding uh, the spread of the virus. And, you know, it just opens up what's always been a very fascinating topic for me. And that is as a former business guy and a guy who grew up around the Congress, a lot of people don't realize that our insider trading laws in America, first of all, are among our most serious white collar laws. We don't mess around, but they also are just totally inadequate to address the conflicts of interest unique to members of Congress. They just don't work. And so we dive into that. I actually had my dad back. He was on our first episode. He came back. Uh, he is no saint, but he, in 16 years in Congress, refused to ever deal with that conflict of interest. And so he never directly owned a security or traded one. And so he likes to call balls and strikes on that subject. And, and we basically just unpackaged it. You don't even actually have to have legislation. I mean, this could be dealt with uh, within House and Senate rules. But it, it's just, you know, even the Jim Cramers of the financial world, it's like every time we have one of these uh, reminders uh, of the conflicts of interest that members of Congress face. It's shocking to a lot of people in the public and even in the financial world that members of Congress can trade stocks. There's really nothing keeping them from it. And uh, even beyond that, they can serve on the boards of companies. And, and there's this is all just ripe for undermining public trust in a moment where we need it more than ever. Exactly. Very well put. I think that's a, it's a good note to end on, Weston. Uh, thank you all. Uh, once again, we've been speaking with Jeremy Surrey from This is Democracy, Weston Womp from Swamp Stories, Luke Nittig from In the Arena, and Rachel Tausenfreund from uh, Out of Order. Thank you all so much for taking time to, to do this today. Great to be part of it. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was fun. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.